Welcome back to On the Horizon podcast, hosted by Jesse Sage and Melrose Michaels. First, thank you so much for becoming a premium subscriber and supporting our podcast. This is going to get you exclusive, unheard, and unseen footage from each interview of On the Horizon. So without further ado, let's dive in to more from our first interview with Kate Diadamo. I feel like there's more... Um just like broader outside of sex work, there's more emphasis on that now, like in a COVID world where labor is kind of falling apart or the way in which we're thinking about labor and um, people just leaving work and like mass droves, yeah. <laughs> businesses shutting down is, I mean, it almost feels to me, I know that things like from a sex worker perspective or from my perspective sometimes feel very um dire because we're just getting hit like every day with some new hurdle that we have to jump across. But on the other hand, it does feel like there, this is like a, a, a moment to start talking about, well, why are there so many people? <laughs> sex yeah. trades? Why is there not like employment that is viable for most people? That the jokes that proliferated about like your restaurant has no servers because everyone was on OnlyFans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at the end, you know, one of the things that I, I recognize that a lot of time I end up talking about trafficking and about violence. I actually, I love so many aspects of working around the sex industry and, and all of the things that I got from that work. And one of them is understanding that sex workers are, like the core of sex work is about ingenuity mm -hmm. and it's about seeing circumstances and having the best hustle that you can have and figuring out the system. And so if you want to talk about the most um, uh, forward thinking labor force, mm -hmm. you're probably talking about sex workers. If you want to talk about who invented membership fees online in like the early nineties, late eighties, it was the Wall Street Journal and a stripper named Danny out of Seattle. If you want to talk about <laughs> branding, it is the people who have multiple names and identities who say this yeah. is a niche market and this is a niche market and I'm going to get in both. Mm -hmm. And so that means that also if you want to talk about who's most thoughtful about the ways that work is changing, who invented the gig economy? Right. It's yeah. 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 You know, if you look at the plat a platform like Lyft and Uber, it's actually not that much different than the way that we streamed on Pornhub. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to talk about the most forward thinking industry and the most forward thinking workers, you're probably talking about sex workers. Do you think, um, I mean, this is just conjecture, I guess, but do you think that the reason that the rest rates are so high is that they're trying to protect that like legal like economy? Like they don't want people who are Freelancing? <laughs> Freelancing. Oh, I absolutely do. If you look at the economies, the economy in Nevada, I mean, think about the fees that you would charge a brothel. And guess where a lot of those fees go? And so I think protecting, uh, you know, casinos dominate uh, that entire landscape and they are a, a hyper-policed space, both private and state, mm -hmm. um, and very excited to kick off sex workers and really force people who are trading sex out of their spaces. And so there's an epic amount of money that is poured into vice-based policing and specifically places like uh, Las Vegas and Reno. And a lot yeah. of that money is coming from the fees and that are uh, coming out of there. And also a lot of those like cities 
have a pretty solid relationship with the money that's coming out of those brothels. And so when those brothel owners want tighter restrictions, like how often you're allowed to leave a brothel when you're working there and whether or not you have to be there for seven days at a time, a lot of those spaces are really complicit. And that complicity comes with higher levels of policing for working outside that structure. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, this is this is on a slightly different note, but I think it's really related. I mean, one of the things that we've been talking about throughout this interview is is labor in general, like issues with labor. And I um, interviewed Marlo Cruz for for Peep Show for my other podcast several months ago when Texas uh, pushed all of the 18, 19 and 20 year olds out of the strip clubs. And one of the things that it made it illegal for them to work there. And one of the things that she said that I thought was really interesting is that she believes that part of the push to get the 18, 19, and 20 year olds uh, to make it illegal for them to work in the strip clubs was because there was nobody working in the service industries anymore. Uh-huh. So you need people to work in the restaurants, you need people to work at the grocery store. And so um, it was a shortage of workers that then they're like, how can we get people to stop? How can we get young people to stop making so much money <laughs> so that they need like our jobs? And it kind of sounds like there's a parallel thing going on with this like criminalization in Nevada. Even the legalization aspect, so like you were just talking about in terms of the brothels in Nevada, how is that not an exploitation of the labor force when you're taking all these fees and yeah. criminalizing them outside of the brothels because it's not paying the tax bill or whatever it might be? Well, yeah. I also know people who worked, um, you know, who were independent in Nevada and they were independent not because they didn't have the um, resources, but because they didn't want to register with the state as a prostitute. Mm. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Which makes a lot of sense because you don't know if they're going to live in Nevada forever. Like. Yeah. 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 And, you know, a lot of those restrictions, because um, there's certain places where you have to do that as a dancer. And, yeah. you know, to go back to the last point, I think you're right. I think criminalization of sex work has historically gone hand in hand at the same time, the exact same moment in time where people are pushing for better labor rights. And how do you make sure to restrict labor rights is you take away and you make more dangerous independent options that mean you don't have to rely on anything else. And so the fact that we're talking about the fight for 15 and the fact that we're talking about people leaving those industries and going to other places How do you make sure that that isn't as much of a threat Well, you crack down really hard on the people who are able to make more of a living independently and independent of these god awful working conditions? Yeah, and that has that's this moment. But um, if you look at the history of sex work in the country and where criminalization pops up, you're probably seeing it the exact same moment. into, especially in terms of trafficking, actually, um, as these pushes for more labor protections are happening. Yeah, because we can't talk about it just in terms of like sex work. We have to be like, what's yeah. going on with the economy more broadly? What's going on yeah. with the pandemic? What's going on with everything else? Because these things are all intertwined. And it's interesting to think about like, it's not interesting, it's uh, terrifying, but yeah. you know. Um, <laughs> To think about like um, the uptick in criminal, in like actual arrests and in um, hyper um, uh, focus on the sex industry at the same time that um, all of these other things are going on. Yeah, it's not a coincidence. And that's one of the other reasons why I think solidarity with other movements um, is something that really excites me. Um, and especially because policing of the sex industry involves 
asking other actors to police behavior as well. So in the trafficking victims reauthorization bill that was just introduced, two of the things that I, a couple, there's a couple provisions that I think are really uh, scary. Um, and one of them is about really incentivizing hotels to do more training of frontline staff to identify trafficking victims. And we've seen those trainings. We know that the things that they're trained to look for and to call an anonymous number. Yeah. Hanging cash, asking for extra uh, uh, towels. Are yeah. there condoms in the wastebasket? Do is there a privacy sign on the door? Do you have two cell phones? It's all profiling, and yeah. at the same time, you have not a lot of luggage. Yeah, like exactly. Yeah, and and this bill actually incentivizes that, and we know that hotel workers are regularly exploited. There's so many different industries that make a hotel function. You're talking about clean, people who clean the rooms. You're talking about the restaurants. You're talking about the wait staff in the restaurants. You're talking about the frontline staff. And by saying that trafficking is hunting down sex workers. You deny those workers the ability to say, no, trafficking is the debt bondage that we are sitting in because you don't yeah. pay us. Yeah. yeah. And so solidarity with other industries. And this, and the, the bill in particular does it with both airlines and the hotel industry. And it's about pushing the attention towards modern day slavery and trafficking are about targeting sex workers. They're not about the labor abuses that you are suffering. And we're not going to ask you to look for those because if you want to do a hotel training, ask how many rooms per hour your house cleaners are required to clean. Ask what they do with the tips and if they're allowed to keep them. Ask how many hours the restaurant staff has to work and whether or not they have flexible uh, workplaces. Those are the things that we need to look for. And instead, you're hunting down people with two cell phones. Next, let's take a look behind the scenes of our interview with Emily Warfield. To think about like what criminalization does, I mean, obviously the most obvious thing is like sets up sex workers for arrest, but there's like all of these other things that um, these kind of kind of ripple effects of being a criminalized like population, I think right. that you touch on. And I think that it's important to to think about that, like what sex workers can't do that everybody else can do. Yeah. Um and again, like there are a lot of intersections um, because, I mean, if they want to criminalize you for something, they'll find something, you know, yeah. of, I mean, that's why I think it, it is, has to be part of this broader movement of like defund the police and Black Lives Matter, because it's like, mm -hmm. if you're, uh, if suddenly, you know, tomorrow sex work was fully decriminalized, they would still be policing the same people, but for things like immigration and drug use and like they, you know, yeah. they would find other things. So I, I do also want to flag that like it's kind of it's it's very much a first step and it's not like the end all be all. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think that that's that's like an interesting point that you bring up, which is that like while sex workers are like very, very aware of all the laws that like impact our our work, um, clients don't seem to pay that much attention. Yeah, that's because they really just are not policed very heavily, except for like poor black and brown men who are already right. being policed very heavily for other yeah. reasons. Yeah. Um, there was a really good, I think it was ProPublica did a really good report on like 
what do the arrests for, um, you know, purchasing sex actually look like in New York City? And it's just overwhelmingly mm-hmm. like poor black and brown men, even though there's no like evidence that they are doing this at a disproportionate rate. Um, okay. Yeah. So like, I, yeah, I mean, I think that this is like a, a problem across the board. I mean, one of the things that like the Nordic model does, I, I very rem- clearly remember one time, um, a liberal feminist who's not involved in like sex work at all. I had asked since when I was doing organizing in my city, I had asked for her help in something. And she was like, Oh, for God's sakes, like we should just, just arrest the Johns and like move on with it. And I was like, wait, no, that's not what any, like, that's not what sex workers want. And I don't know why it's not intuitive that, like, if you start making, like, clients, like, criminal um, and their activities, like, criminalized, then it, and this is going back to what you were saying, like, it makes them, like, scared to give screening, like, information, yeah. makes them afraid to meet you in public places. Like, there's no way in which this is positively impacting no, sex work at all. No. Yeah. No, and it's also... I mean, I think if I can just like sort of inappropriately psychologically analyze them a little bit, um, I really just think that it's like when you're economically privileged enough that like you've never had to think about trading sex to pay the rent. It's just so far removed that it, it becomes more of an issue of ideological violence for you where you're like, okay, men purchasing women means that like women are objects to be bought and sold. That's bad. What do I do when things are bad? Like I'm a white lady. I call the cops. Like it's, it's very theoretical for, for them. Um, which is interesting because I think there are a lot of parallels to abortion. Um, and I think that like, if survival sex were a thing that these more privileged feminists ever had to consider doing the way that they have to consider needing an abortion, like we just wouldn't be having this debate, but they don't like, they're so far removed from the reality of like criminalization and survival that it's like this weird, like exercise in ideological debate when it's like, no, this is like people's real lives are, are happening right now. And like, you're not, Right. Yeah, it, and it's especially weird because like they have their whole their whole weird argument is like, well, you're either too privileged for your opinion to matter as a sex mm-hmm. worker, or you're like so degraded that um, you just don't know what's best for you. Like there is right. <laughs> those they, are the only two options. Yeah, with this really good like, I mean, and that's how you know you're dealing with somebody who like you can't win an argument if there's no way to disprove it. Like for us, our side would be like, okay, show us the evidence that like this reduces violence against sex workers and they can't right. do it. <laughs> like if an argument can't be disproven, it's not based in fact. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was so striking to me that like, that's what she thought was a response that like me as a sex worker would be like, yeah, that's a better option. Let's just make all of the clients um terrified and criminalized yeah yeah that's great that'll be great yeah and I I really love the book revolting prostitutes because they make this point again and again that's like sex workers need to pay our bills is much more important than clients need for sex so like okay let's say you do end demand then what yeah right and they never like there's never an answer for that because they've never had to think about poverty yeah, no, I mean, I think that that's, that's why we're like having these conversations, because I think it's not just about like, uh, a prostitution law, it's about like the entire, yeah, exactly. like, the entire system of all yeah. of the workers who are occupying these spaces. And I think that like, the, um, the way in which like, 
liberal feminists have connected up with uh, right wing Christians um, mm-hmm. is like in terms of ideology regarding sex work, I think is really important to point out. And you already like drew this parallel that when, um, you know, last last week, last month, I don't know, everything is like blurring together. And, um, <laughs> it's, it's been a lot. Yeah, yeah. It's been a lot. I can't even like, uh, yeah, when um, the Texas abortion bans came out, um, I felt very um, angry about (laughs) how angry liberal feminists were about not being able to make choices about their bodies when they were the ones like when they're like pushing so hard for sex workers not to be able to like have right and I I spent a lot of time analyzing it like in terms of political alliances and policy but ultimately I really do think there is this aspect of psychology that comes into play where it's just like where is this failure of empathy happening? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I really do think it's like this weird, like class and race based thing. Um, not always. They, there are, I mean, the move, that movement is very much like led by rich white women. Yeah. Um, it's not entirely made up of rich white women. And if you go and look at like who's working and I, I was also a, a research assistant, um, and I, I worked on a study of the human trafficking intervention courts, which FYI is where everyone arrested on a prostitution charge um, winds up in the in in New York City, um, or at least prior to what the Manhattan DA is doing. But still, the case yeah. in like Brooklyn and Queens and the outer boroughs, um, mostly people there are not actually being trafficked. But even if you are actually being trafficked, you're mm-hmm. still a criminal because you were mm-hmm. committing the crime of prostitution and like. You can use that as a defense, but most people aren't going to go to trial. So they they came up yeah. with these courts. And a lot of the people working in the courts are like working class women of color. Like, so I don't want to say that, like, I mean, like most shitty movements, it's being led by rich white ladies. But they've, <laughs> they've also done a good job of, like, convincing yeah women who might otherwise know better that, like, no, actually, the police can solve this problem. Right. Um, but the, the women who are actually like going through the system, you know, it's they, they know that the police have never right. they've never been been the answer to this issue. Um, and right. you know, it's largely like um, women of color, trans people of color, um, immigrants, like people who are already very heavily policed for other things anyway. And like right. the cops were never going to help with this or any other problem. And actually, one of the books I like to recommend on sex work is Invisible No More by Andrea Ritchie, which is mostly just about like the policing of women of color, Mm -hmm. um, because it puts that in the context of like other things police do to women of color. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good recommendation as well. Last but not least, let's listen to the exclusive from our chat with Larry Walters. This isn't a situation where, you know, we can create a world online that is completely different from the real world. I mean, people do bad things in the real world and they'll do bad things online. You can't expect the online environment to be a, you know, a Disney world version of the real world. It just isn't and never Mm -hmm. will be. And, Mm -hmm. And to punish those who allow the communications to occur is just it's so absurd it's it's just the same as punishing the telephone company 
for you know people that plan a murder hit on, on, on the yeah. telephone. It's, yeah. it's the same exact concept. Yet you know just because there's video involved or there's there's more content involved, suddenly the platform operators are expected to you know, identify every illegal activity that occurs on their site and prevent it before it happens. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's a tall order, but you know that's it's becoming the expectation, which is uh, extremely difficult. It seems even more like insidious than that, though, because it's not even just like the rhetoric around it is not even just we don't want people to be talking about sex or sexuality, but people who are doing that are predators. Like yeah. if kids, you know, happen upon porn, then that's child abuse. You know, like I think a lot of this is getting like reframed in ways that are really problematic. Yes. And it's, you know, it, it goes back to. You know the prior efforts to to ban porn. Um, it, this this took various iterations, and the anti-porn folks really never found a message that connected until they mm-hmm. were able to tie uh, pornography to sex trafficking. Yeah, right. specifically children. Yeah. yeah, protect the children. Yeah, they always use protect the children. They tried unsuccessfully for a while to say, well, you know, uh, all these porn producers are really child pornographers, and you know, it's all child pornography and then they realize that there just isn't any evidence of that. And that yeah. the United States and <laughs> producers and, and worldwide producers are extremely careful not to create underage content. And so, you know, without that evidence, they had to find a different um, argument. And that for a while they tried, well, it's really like crack cocaine. It, it causes erototoxins in the brain. It causes you basically <laughs> think like a different person. And you know, so we, we have to, for public health purposes, we have to ban porn. People kind of laugh that it's off. Um, yeah. 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 That was a big one for a while. And, uh, and, and these are all the morality and media folks, which now I guess yeah. call the National Center Against Sexual Exploitation. Uh, but it's all the same people that have been trying these different arguments. And so, you know, once they realized that there was this big sex trafficking panic, uh, they thought, well, we got to get in on that. You know, they'd almost mm-hmm. lost everything. They they had uh, lost their uh, lobbying registration. They had no money coming in. And then they realized, well, we can tie our anti-porn agenda into uh, sex trafficking because, you know, there's a lot of sex trafficking going on in the adult industry, uh, which, again, no evidence of that. But, you know, that is the that's the argument. And um, and that, that worked for them. You know, frankly, it, it was yeah. a brilliant strategy. And they've they've taken their um, their lobbying efforts and their financial success to new heights uh, because the uh, the public has bought into the argument. So it is one that, you know, the adult industry has to push back on at every turn. You always have mm-hmm. to fight with the facts and the truth. And the, you know, the bottom line is that, you know, the adult entertainment industry is not rampant with sex trafficking. Um, yes, there's going to be outliers. There's going to be people that break the rules and that do criminal things and are punished and should be punished. Um, but that's not what the adult entertainment industry is about. And there's no evidence yeah. that that is rampant in the adult industry. And so, you know, uh, it's just a matter of, again, fighting with the facts and, uh, and making sure that you push back at every turn uh, because, you know, their voices are getting louder and louder. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So has FOSTA SESTA been used yet? Um, I guess successfully. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I know that it had a shuddering effect, but like, has it actually been tried in court yet? Yes, there was uh, one case so far where the charges were based on FOSTA SESTA. Uh, at least okay. some of the charges. And that was a case brought against a, a man who ran the website City X Guide, uh, which was an escort advertising site. And um, he was prosecuted 
uh, brought, uh, the charges were brought under a few different theories like money laundering and uh, I think racketeering, but FOSTA SESTA, um, you know, sex trafficking and promotion of prostitution was in there as well. And um, unfortunately, the, um, the lawyers that defended him, and of course, you know, they had to do what they had to do, but they raised these constitutional issues that we are litigating in the Woodhall Freedom Foundation case and mm-hmm. tried to use that as a defense in a very difficult case. Um, you know, we very carefully chose our plaintiffs and our arguments and our briefing and you know, some of the best lawyers in the country arguing this case. And it was very all carefully um, briefed and, and organized. Um, this was, you know, put together seemingly very quickly. And the judge just basically blew it off and said, no, this law looks fine to me. And um, after that, the, uh, the defendant took a plea, ended up pleading uh, guilty to a number of charges and has not been sentenced yet. Um, so that's really the only case that has you know, even considered any of these issues. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't think that, you know, that that case is, is correctly decided. It's certainly not binding on any other court. Um, and we're ready for the, the court in Washington, D.C., Judge Leon, to render a decision at any time. You know, there have been other cases that have been brought based on the removal of Section 230 immunity that we talked mm-hmm. about, the civil cases. And you know, these are cases against uh, Twitter and Kick and Pornhub, other platforms where you know, this removal of Section 230 immunity allows uh, sex trafficking survivors to sue these platforms. Mm-hmm. If, yeah. Let's say a video was uploaded on Pornhub. Uh, of somebody who was forced to engage in sexual activity, they're trying to hold platform providers responsible for contributing to sex trafficking because the video was uploaded. Um, and you know, in my view, that is a, that's a stretch. You know, the, the Twitter and Pornhub and, and these folks are not involved in the sex trafficking activities. In fact, n- had no knowledge at all that they were occurring. And the argument is, well, you didn't find it fast enough. You didn't prevent it in the first place. Um, You're not psychic. You automatically monetized it like you automatically monetized every other piece of content on the site. And so as a result, you benefited from it. There's this uh, very broad beneficiary theory of sex trafficking that can be brought in a a civil claim, which is frankly why Section 230 was there in the first place, was to prevent this kind of thing from happening because sex trafficking laws are very broad. And intentionally so, because they want to, you know, they want to get everybody that's involved in the sex trafficking venture. They want to punish everybody. You know, if you're driving people around, you're going to get punished the same way as if you're holding a gun to somebody's head and saying, go do it. Uh, yeah, and yeah. so they're, they're intentionally written broadly to cover that. But they're written so broadly that anybody who benefits from a sex trafficking venture can be caught in that net, in that conspiracy allegation. And so that's what they're using to try to go after, you know, Twitter and Kick and MindGeek. Um, and so those cases are pending. You know, we, we we're seeing an interesting split in the courts as far as the level of knowledge that the platform has to have. You know, so you can imagine that these platforms had no idea that this stuff was occurring. So the argument now is, do you have to know about the sex trafficking or should you have known about the sex trafficking? That seems like such an outlandish like bar to me because yeah. of course you should know if you're doing something wrong. Otherwise, why are you? That's yeah, like you know, ah. exactly, and and that's you know that's typically the difference between civil and criminal cases. Though we have negligence theories where if you're yeah, negligent yeah. and you should have known to you know clean up the the spill in the aisle and somebody might trip and fall and you didn't do it well, you know you're going to be found guilty even if you didn't actually know that it was there and didn't do it. You should have had somebody looking for the spill. Um, so there are those kinds of theories that are legitimate, but here there's two courts that have said, 
No, you have to have actual knowledge. And two courts have said the should you know it is enough. And so that's the interesting split that we're seeing. That's what's going to go up to the appellate courts and maybe even to the Supreme Court. And that will make the biggest difference, frankly, for the rights of the platforms, for First Amendment rights, for sex worker rights. Uh, you know, a, a little nuanced legal issue like that is going to have a tremendous impact on the, the future of Internet freedom. My understanding, um, and this is going back a little bit to this idea of like facilitating or benefiting from prostitution, but that in the way that um, the idea of like sex trafficking is broad, like the definite legal definitions of um, prostitution are also broad and change like per state. Is that correct from a legal standpoint? Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Uh, prostitution is defined differently in different states. You know, we know it's legal in, in at least some areas of Nevada. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, a, it's a different concept in different states. And interestingly, FOSTA-SESTA, although it prohibits the promotion or facilitation of prostitution, it doesn't define what prostitution is. Right. Uh, yeah. There are no right. elements. And, and so you, you have no idea as a platform operator what the activity even is that you're not supposed to promote or facilitate. And so <laughs> yeah, that's right. this, this breath comes in where, you know, the lawyers are sitting in the room saying, well, look, I can't tell you what you have to stay away from, but, you know, the adult entertainment, who knows who's being paid to do what or whether this will be deemed to be art or prostitution or something in between. So just, you know, stay away from it. And, and that's why we're seeing so much sexually oriented speech be censored. So, so in, I don't know if you know that much about this, but I'm thinking about this as you're speaking in, um, you know, we have more of like an idea of what prostitution is, even if it's like uh, broadly defined in different and, and different in different states. But like recently I saw that in like Texas, for example, they were trying to bring porn into that as well and saying like, if you, if, if you're not just doing like a trade for trade and instead you're paying a scene partner to do it with you, is that pro- like to create a scene with you? Is that prostitution? Like, um, or I don't even know if that's how they're talking about it now. I, I'm not a lawyer, but like, <laughs> I don't know exactly. That's how why you're here, Larry. Right? <laughs> but, like, um, but yeah, I mean, it seems like a lot of this stuff with Foster Sesta is now like um, moving away from trafficking, moving away yeah. from prostitution, moving into porn. Like everything's bleeding together to kind of just push out all forms of sex work is what it feels like. Well, yeah, what, what you're hitting on is the... Uh, anti-porn advocates wet dream and that is, is yeah. to label all pornography prostitution right yeah. they don't mm-hmm. like the idea that you can create a video where people are paid to engage in sex and that is protected by the first amendment uh, yeah. there are cases uh, two cases that have held that the production of adult content is protected either by a state constitution or by the wording of the prostitution laws or possibly by the First Amendment. So, you know, those issues are still kind of open to debate. Um, mm-hmm. I firmly believe that production of adult content is protected by the First Amendment. Uh, now, there, there may be gray areas on the edge where, you know, if, if you're setting up a brothel and you put a camera in the room, um, that's not going to change the fact that it's a brothel. But, you know, if you're creating adult content, you're selling it, you're getting 2257 records and model releases. I mean, it's for the purpose of, um, of what we call exploitation, but of yeah. um, selling the content, of publicizing the content that is protected by the First Amendment. But um, the anti-porn advocates don't see it that way, don't want to see it that way, are hoping that someday you know, they'll catch a break and a court will rule that uh, it's not protected by the First Amendment and it's all prostitution. Uh, but I don't believe that that's the case. And I think that the, that's a tough road for them to win. 
We hope you enjoyed the bonus footage from this episode of On the Horizon, and we look forward to having you tune in next time.